direct your attention to a single verse of Jeremiah chapter 6. You know ordinarily that it is a perilous exercise to take a verse by itself and not in its context. But uh, in this particular case, it's easier to do because the context is the entire prophecy of Jeremiah, as we'll see in a short while. We'll have uh, reason to draw your attention to several other verses in the vicinity in a short time. But uh, this is such a typical sermon of Jeremiah. Wherever you would open the book to read, you would uh, find sentiments very much such as these are in chapter 6. He is warning the people of God that because of their betrayal of his covenant, they have divine wrath to face. And uh, in the midst of that warning, he reminds them what it would require for them to escape the wrath of God that has been foretold and uh, to once again find themselves at peace with their God and Maker. And that's uh, the 16th verse of Jeremiah chapter 6. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. Father in heaven, make these words to live again. Indeed, to make them live in our hearts in a way they did not live in the hearts of so many of Jeremiah's own contemporaries who were the first to hear these words from his lips. By that same spirit by which he first spoke, speak now to us. For Jesus' sake, amen. At the end of his critique, of modern technological society in his book, Technopoly, Neil Postman suggested to his readers that the proper response to a modern culture like ours, at least if you agree with his assessment of that culture, would be that of a, he says, loving resistance fighter, acknowledging that the momentum of the forces of technological idolatry are still in the ascendant, that there are no signs visible that these forces are likely to wither anytime soon, the best that one can do is to resist, to refuse to capitulate to the technological world of thought to whom everyone else, or uh, to which everyone else has capitulated, to refuse to embrace the orthodoxies and the idols of the culture before which everyone else is bowing down, even if that resistance sets you apart from your fellow countrymen and their way of thinking and living leaves you as something of the odd man or woman out. As he put it, such resistance would amount to such things as paying no attention to a poll unless one knows what questions were asked and why and what the people who answered the poll knew about the questions that were being asked or the subject that was being discussed. Refusing to accept efficiency as the preeminent goal of human relations. 
refusing to regard calculation as an adequate substitute for judgment or precision as a synonym for truth, remaining suspicious of the idea of progress and refusing to confuse information with understanding. Most of you have heard the saw that, uh, I don't know exactly how it goes, but uh, something to the effect that uh, we have learned more in the human race of the last 15 years or 20 years than the entire human race learned up to that point. How dumb does somebody have to be to, to believe a statement like that? A complete confusion of information and knowledge, of information and understanding, which are two completely different things. Taking seriously the meaning of family loyalty and honor, and when one reaches out and touches someone, he would expect that person to be in the same room. Taking the great narratives of religion seriously and refusing to believe that science is the only system of thought capable of producing truth, and so on. That's what a resistant, a loving resistance fighter uh, against our modern technological culture would do, against the drift and grain of the behavior of all around him. It is, I think, an apt image for Christians also, and I set it before you as the new year begins. We, too, must be loving resistance fighters as Christians, both in our culture and, still more importantly, in the church itself. But for us, of course, it means a different set of interests and commitments, a different resistance, a different love than that which Mr. Postman recommends. We live in an age of novelty. Few of us, I think, appreciate how much this is so, <coughs> and in an age of the worship of novelty and the modern. It is the characteristic feature of our time and even of evangelical Christianity in our time. People think, for example, in the church, people think of their lives and their problems after a fashion that is brand new in the church of Jesus Christ. Whole industries now exist to help people with their personal problems that did not exist a generation ago. The church is worshiping in a, in a fashion she has never followed in all the ages of her life in this world up to this very generation. The message of the Word of God is being proclaimed in a manner and according to a selection that is quite new in the history of Christian preaching. Christian ethics are likewise being reshaped according to contemporary modes of thought in a way and to a degree that is not only new, but it is so new that it was utterly unknown just a generation ago. The rethinking of gender is but one example of such a radical revolution in Christian ethics spreading now over most of the evangelical world and most evangelical institutions, just as it is already in the culture at large. And the power of that novelty is such that just as most Americans are today unaware of how technology has altered the way they think about the most fundamental issues of life, so most Christians are utterly unaware that the very modern way in which they think and live and worship represents a profound, a radical departure from the traditions of evangelical Christianity stretching all the way back to Eden. It's a very different world 
that Christians live in and have made their peace with today. The ancient ways are being forgotten. And to most believers who are largely unaware of the significance of these changes, those ancient ways being forgotten, they have nothing to say but good riddance. As Paul found the Athenians of old in Acts chapter 17, so Christians today are doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas because being people of their time as they are, they assume that the new is better. It is the conceit of the modern world that the past is primarily a dead weight, that innovation is the key to a richer and a better life. But it is a striking thing to me that this is never the viewpoint of Holy Scripture. The new and the novel are never prized for themselves in the Bible. We're never urged to be on the lookout for new ideas or a new way of doing things. The modern assumption that the new is better cannot be found in the Bible, which is very important because that assumption underlies a great deal of what everybody thinks and believes today. The Bible is not hostile to many new things, of course. Many innovations are perfectly compatible with Christian truth and can be embraced and used by Christians. But not the main things, not the central things, not the definitive things. Not our view of God or of the world or of His Word. Not our view of man, his nature, and his significance. Not our view of the understanding of the relationship that a holy God bears to sinful man. Our view of salvation, or of the life we are to live in the world, or the worship we are to offer God. Not our view of human destiny, nor our view of what constitutes right and wrong. All of this has been laid down for us in the distant past. All of that truth lies behind us in one name, one person, one event, one history, one book. And by this we mean more than simply that we draw our truth from the Bible, and the Bible is a book that was written long ago. Always we are led from the past. We're taught how to live by faith, by being pointed to the examples of those who did so long ago. We are taught what it means to walk with God by being pointed to those who have done so in generations long since gone. We're encouraged by being reminded of those who trusted God long ago and were not disappointed. It's a matter of utter indifference to the Bible that the people we are told to emulate, as for example in Hebrews 11, with its hall of the heroes or champions of faith, lived thousands of years ago in a world at least superficially so different from our own. In what really matters, really matters, there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is exactly Jeremiah's point in the text we read. The church of his day had moved beyond the old ways. They were enamored of new things, novelties that the world around her had devised and embraced. 
most of the religions that they were tempted to embrace for themselves, or at least to bring into their practice of what they considered to be the ancient faith of Moses, were relatively new on the landscape of the ancient world. Indeed, the parallels between Jeremiah's day and our own are striking and ominous. Everything from the worship of goddesses to materialism run riot to the hope, the confidence of God's people in almost everything but the Lord himself. As we read in verses 13 and 15, what the people had really left behind the constitutive feature of their modernity, we could say, was their taking with ever less seriousness the entire matter of the place and position of man before a holy God. So Jeremiah says, here is the problem. If you want the problem in a nutshell, if you want the whole reason for my prophetic ministry in a word, here it is. The ministry... Today, in the church of God, dresses the wound of my people, by which Jeremiah means their unbelief, their disobedience, their worldliness, their disinterest in the word and the covenant of God. The ministry dresses the wound of my people as if it were not serious. And they do that, the ministers do, priests and prophets, because that is the way to be successful in this contemporary environment as Jeremiah had said at the end of the previous chapter, the prophets prophesy lies. Now remember, all of these people would still claim to be followers of Moses. None of them had thrown that off. They would all have been what we would call today evangelicals. I heard yesterday afternoon on the television as I was watching a church service on Christian television, a minister who is widely regarded as a prominent evangelical, his books would be found in all our evangelical bookstores, come to the peroration of his message and say that he had come to believe through the course of his life and ministry that he could no longer put confidence in the political and social structures of our day. He could no longer trust the powers that be. He knew now that he had to believe in, what would you expect the next word to be? Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the Almighty. But it was not. I have to believe in me. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. Why do they do that? My people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? Ah, there's the rub. The end. So ends chapter 5. And this diagnosis of Judah's spiritual disease, this interpretation of her situation before God, is not, as I said at the beginning, a minor feature of Jeremiah's preaching. It is his main point. He returns to it over and again, sometimes in exactly the same words, as in, for example, chapter 8, verse 11. 
sometimes in words that mean the same thing, as in chapter 14, verses 13 and following, and many like passages. Martin Lloyd-Jones once characterized the message of false prophets in this way. This is false prophecy in the Christian church. In any era, in any place, in any time, it will always have this characteristic. It does not emphasize repentance in any real sense. It has a very wide gate leading to salvation and a very broad way leading to heaven. You need not feel much of your own sinfulness. You need not be aware of the blackness of your own heart. It is entirely unlike the evangelism of the Puritans, say, or of John Wesley, George Whitfield, and others, which led men to be terrified of the judgment of God and to have an agony of soul sometimes for days and weeks and months. John Bunyan tells us in his grace abounding that he endured an agony of repentance for 18 months. There does not seem to be much room for that today. Repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you that you long to get rid of it and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ, your nearest and dearest, and the whole world may call you a fool or say you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. The false prophet does not put it like that. He heals the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, which is the King James Version translation of Jeremiah 6.16, which we read from the NIV. Simply saying, the false prophet does, that it is all right and that you have but to trust that God will love you. Or maybe just trust yourself and all will be well. They offer an easy salvation and an easy type of life Always. Several generations ago, Rabbi Duncan could already see this coming in his once great and faithful church. There is enough gospel preaching, he said, to heal the world of sin-sick souls. But where is the preaching to make souls sin-sick in the first place? And this is our situation today, and to a frightening degree. How rapidly! It has overtaken the evangelical world. There are folk, many folk, sitting in this church who were Christians long ago, long enough ago, to be absolutely taken aback by how quickly everything has changed. This lack of seriousness about sin and salvation and the holiness of God. This is the atmosphere in which feminism, the so-called evangelical feminism, has flourished. Such a movement, such changes, such a thinly disguised throwing off of the yoke of Christ and his word could only have occurred in a spiritual atmosphere in which people are no longer taking seriously the wrath of God. The terrible momentousness of human life and destiny. Only in that kind of an atmosphere would Christian people clamor for their own advancement and demand a greater share of this world's honor. Only in such an atmosphere would Christian people play so cavalierly with the teaching of Holy Scripture and the ages-long tradition of God's Holy Church in a mad dash to get more of what the world calls glory. 
This is the atmosphere as well in which the therapeutic mindset of the modern church could grow and flourish until such as it is today, vast numbers of Christians, when they sin, are more concerned that others seem to be judging them for their sin, are more concerned whether another Christian has showed them understanding adequate compassion, adequate sympathy, as they count sympathy, then they are concerned about what God thinks about their sins. Or, still more, what he might do to them on account of their sins. No, says the Lord through Jeremiah to that generation, and now to this, our own generation of the church, it's not the new thing that you need, but the old thing. The truth about God and about sin and about wrath. The truth about salvation and how difficult it is, but how desperately important it is to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. About heaven and about hell. What you need is not a modern life, but the old life that faithful men and women have lived before you and by so living have not only gotten to heaven themselves, but have shown you the way there. Absolutely, use a computer, drive a car, fly to the moon if you can manage it. But what difference does any of this make in the total scheme of human life in the face of a holy God and in the face of the prospects of eternal death or eternal life? If you can send your message faster by email, then by all means do so. But you will get to the judgment day at exactly the same pace at which everyone has gotten there before you. And when you are there, it will not be to a computer to whom you will give a, a rendering, an account, an explanation of the life you have lived, but it will be the same indescribably holy God whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity and who will by no means clear the guilty before whose face mankind has always lived and will continue to live as long as there is a world. And it will not be for the speed of your mail that you will answer, but for the confidence you invested in God's word, the gratitude with which you embraced his salvation in Christ, the zeal with which you sought to love and serve him in the world. So it is that we must be loving resistance fighters in the Christian world of our day, holding fast to what seems to be of little interest to an increasing number of Christians as the months and years pass, but which are nonetheless the ancient paths, the old ways, which still today are the only ways that lead to God. It may be it seems altogether likely that it will be the case that the church will grow still less interested in these things, these ancient paths, as time goes on. All the signs indicate this, but then this will hardly be the first time in the history of the church in the world that a generation of Christians has been summoned, as that generation was in Jeremiah's day, to hold fast to the ancient paths when all the rest of the world and, alas, most of the church are turning away from them as rapidly as they can. And so it must be, as Charles Simeon long ago put it, 
in a day for the forsaking of the ancient paths, very much like our own day, that the chief aims of Christian preaching have to remain what they have always been when ministers have been faithful and when God's people have been hungry for his word, to humble the sinner, to exalt the Savior, and to promote holiness of life in the world. As one of Simeon's biographers summarized his preaching, and this was utterly unique preaching in his day, all was gathered around these two foci, the sin of man and the glory of the Redeemer. Say the words. How old-fashioned they sound. Out of touch. But how necessary if we are to think and feel and act as faithful Christians at all. And certainly as faithful Christians always have. This was the food that nourished them. And no other food will do for us. But you ask, if we follow the ancient paths, will we have any influence? Could we conceivably have any influence in our culture? If we walk the twisting, rough, and rocky ancient ways, while all around us the world is walking the smooth highway of the modern world, who is going to listen to us? How are we going to have any effect or impact for the truth in our day? Well, we may be more influential than you think. And if we are to have any real influence, any holy and saving influence on our culture, I tell you, this is how we must have it. Last Christmas, one of my presents was Professor Daniel's magisterial new biography of William Tyndall. You remember, I told you about it. I began the year, 1995, reading uh, this great work on this man whom I now believe we should generally regard as the single most influential Englishman who ever lived. And by that I mean the single most influential human being who ever spoke the English language as his native tongue, Americans included. You remember what I told you about Tyndall. He was the first to translate the Bible into English from Hebrew and Greek. And his work was a miracle of consecrated learning in the translator's art. The King James Version of the Bible is where it could follow Tyndall, where he had gone before them, 80% William Tyndall's work. And the places where the King James Version is at its worst are regularly those places where Tyndall did not get his work finished and the translators had to make their own way. What greater influence has there been on English culture or on English-speaking human beings than the English Bible? And the English Bible was, to a very great degree, the accomplishment of this one man. But Tyndall had to do his great work while walking the ancient paths that almost no one in his land was walking with him. Indeed, most of his great work, his epoch-making work was done while he was scuttling across Europe from town to town, his books and those sacred pages of his translation in his bag, because he was a hunted man, a criminal for the work he was doing. A great horde of men, ministers mostly, who were every one of them treating the wound of God's people as if it were not serious, were seeking this man's life 
for his dedication to the faith once given and delivered to the saints. He was martyred, his work not yet completed in the Old Testament at the age of 42. He was all his adult life a resistance fighter, an outcast from the dominant culture of his day and of his church. But did he have influence? Walking the ancient paths when no one else would walk them with him made him the single most influential Englishman who's ever lived. This Christmas, the point was born in once more. This time I was given a biography of Mother Teresa, the famous nun whose works of charity and Christian love in uh, Calcutta amongst the most destitute and needy of people have won her not only the world's admiration and acclaim, but the Nobel Peace Prize and a remarkable moral and spiritual authority in a world that little believes what she believes. We all, of course, wish her doctrine were otherwise at many places. But if you read her life, and indeed her own words, as I have done, you will certainly believe that she is motivated by a love for God that has been drawn from her out of the sense she has of God's great love for her in Jesus Christ. She wants to praise and give glory to God with her life because of God's great goodness to her a sinner. This is what she says. What struck me about her story, however, was this. She did not seek influence or a reputation in the world. Those things were the farthest thing from her mind when she began her work in the late 40s amongst the dying and the destitute in Calcutta. Indeed, at that time, it was a work calculated to be overlooked. The world was agog with other things at that time. India was getting her independence. She was getting a new government. All manner of hope was being invested in political solutions to India's problems, as they were at the same time all over the rest of the world. These were the things people were interested in, what they were enamored of, what they were putting their confidence in. She was returning to the old paths when everyone was jumping off of those to get on to the new. The ancient rules of Christian charity and extravagant love, when everywhere else and everyone else was enamored of new ways and new hopes and new techniques. But what an influence God gave her in this world that is so uncongenial to her message. Who would ever have supposed in the late 1940s when this single unexceptional Catholic nun began a new order of charitable work in the slums of Calcutta. Who would have supposed that someday she would be lecturing the high and the mighty on the sin of abortion? The ancient ways are the true ways after all. And one way or another, God will always bear his witness to that fact. The new ways are always in one way or another simply the old rebellion the old and futile human search for some way to salvation other than that way God himself has provided. And they will never work. Or as Jeremiah put it, these novelties will excite an interest and satisfy you for a time. But what will you do in the end? Here are two Christians, William Tyndall, 
and Mother Teresa who remind us who must be loving resistance fighters ourselves that God is not without his ways to use us for his glory and the world's good even when we are completely out of step with what that world thinks, even with what the Christian world thinks. And then what if we have little influence at the end? What if instead, by the will of God, we tread the ancient paths almost alone and our numbers decrease in our land as they seem to be decreasing and for the sake of the judgments of the Almighty, which are true and righteous altogether, the truth remains overturned in the streets. What is that to us, finally? If all forsake him, we shall not, and we say it not with Peter's self-confident boasting, but with love and loyalty that fully understands that without him we can do nothing. It will be our glory and our greater gift to him who deserves the greatest gift we could possibly give to walk his ancient paths and to proclaim them the truth about God and man when all the world around us will not. And if that shall be our calling, well, we will not be the first Christians, not by any means the first, to have lived and have loved against the odds. We have no hearth. The ashes lie in blackness where they brightly shone. We have no home. The desert sky our covering, earth our couch alone. We have no heritage. Deprived of these, we ask not such on earth. Our hearts are sealed. We seek in heaven for heritage and home and hearth. O Salem, city of the saints and holy men made perfect, we pant for thy gates, our spirits faint, thy glorious golden streets to see, to mark the rapture that inspires the ransomed and redeemed by grace, to listen to the seraph's lyres and meet the angels face to face. And we can be loving resistance fighters, not bitter, not desperate, because after all, little flock, the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Amen.